<laughs> well, no, the comic thing is new. It was just like that's completely out of like years of people telling me I should make a comic and just finally doing it. You know, realizing that it's part of my art practice that kind of got beat out of me at an early age. So yeah, it was time for me to. Maybe oh, oh shit! We're we're it. already podcasting. Hold on, we're already we are. <laughs> I'm John Mejias in New York. I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. Welcome to We Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about all the research and all the reading. I don't fight it anymore. I'm just kind of following it. This episode, we're talking to Mark Thomas Gibson about my hand. That's the one thing I always can trust and that always makes it work. We'll just start with Mark Thomas Gibson explaining who Mark Thomas Gibson is. That way, I don't have to make stuff up. You're a painter. So where were you born? Hi, I'm Mark Thomas Gibson. I'm 35 years old. I'm originally from Miami, Florida. I was born January 2nd, 1980. For anyone who wants to steal my identity. Um, <laughs> I Or send birthday presents. Exactly. <laughs> that would be nice. Don't be a pessimist. I'm from Miami, Florida. So I started off uh, going to art school like in fifth grade. I was a part of that whole like magnet art school thing. Oh, uh, me too. Yeah. Did you have to make a portfolio in the fifth grade? Oh, yeah, dude. Uh, it was like, well, basically, it was just a bunch of drawings of Wolverine. <laughs> it was just like Wolverine, you know, like totally like the brown and yellow outfit with the claws out. Um, Did somebody tell you you have to make a still life, though, to look like you know what you're doing? Yeah, I think I might have had to do that. So my mom, like, set out some oranges, and I drew those. And I just did, like, some contour drawings because I didn't probably really understand anything about shading at the time. And I got in. And it was just like off to the races. I I was like so excited because finally, you know, the kid who just sat in the back who, you know, used to try to like have little mini drawing competitions with other kids. Like all of a sudden I'm in a room with a bunch of other students who want to do what I do. Right. And I just excelled, you know, like all of a sudden for the first time, like education, quote unquote, like meant something. So I felt like it was my thing to do. Everything else kind of fell to the wayside. And from that point on, it was just art elementary school middle school high school how did um, your parents feel about that um that's a 50 50 you know <laughs> it's like my old man was really downer on it and yeah. never really let up and my mom was she worked at like writer and then she worked at burger king corp international and so she would get like all the copy paper and she would like put holes in it and she'd make me like sketchbooks out of that cool. and so i was just like had these giant like you know, those weird, almost like black trapper keeper type things from the 80s. You mm-hmm. know, so I'd have one of those just filled with like paper and I would just start drawings and just that's how I started. So now at your openings, is your mom like, see, I told you. That's a little bit, a little <laughs> bit. Or no, that's my son, you know, and she walks around very, and you know. your dad is smile. like, ah, but you're not a lawyer. No, no, he's, he's funny because like, so my old man, he retires from like the postmaster, for being a postmaster. He was, um... He was like the first black postmaster of Homestead and like Daytona Beach and Hialeah and all these other crazy places. And, you know, he just had to start working at a really young age. So he so he retires. He starts painting and he's like paints like we we have like similar subject matters or we have like similar angles to things. He has like a naturally amazing hand. Like I took I came home one Christmas after he retired. He's like, hey, um, son, could you uh, could you uh, take me to the art store? I want to. I want to. I want to buy some supplies, and so I, I take him to the art store, and I you know like the little fiber castle like starter kit with like the eraser and the sharpener, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So I go and I grab one of those. 
I give him a sketchbook. I tell him exactly what my first art teacher told me. He's like, here's your sketchbook. You got to take it everywhere you go. You know, like you have to you work in it all the time. You know, this is where your ideas happen. Like, you know, handed it to him. And he drew like a raging elephant running directly at you from his mind. And it was like perfect. <laughs> and I was just, and I was just like, son of a bitch. You know, like all those years of like giving me crap and the guy had it. So, yeah. So we're good. We talk about it. So this is the weird thing is, is I feel like I'm I'm interviewing myself because like I had that similar arc and that I went to a magnet school for art. Then I went mm-hmm. to Cooper Union, and then I went to Yale. So it yeah. was like meritocracy works. Um, yeah, but it's funny because like I didn't want to go to Cooper. Really? <laughs> Why? Yeah. I had a bunch of schools that I was going to, and it was like Cooper was in New York and free, and like SVA yeah. was in New York and not free, and then mm-hmm. like MICA was like where I grew near where I grew up and expensive, okay. and so that was how I decided. But how did you parse it when you were a kid? Okay, I guess you're right. We have the same story. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I wanted to go to SVA because I wanted to draw, like, Bart Sears and make, like, big muscle-bound, like, anime. Nice. Or, or drawings, you know, like that crap. Bart Sears did amazing Justice League Europe comics and then rapidly went downhill after that. But, totally. Uh, for those of I you agree. with Google. Anyway. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and so um, then I was thinking about going to Micah because I was like, well, I want to maybe be an illustrator. I don't know. There's a bigger campus. And... But then, you know, I got into Cooper and it was like that free deal. And at the time, my old man still was like not on the art thing at all. So I was just like, I applied. They didn't even know. I was having some like argument with my old man. And he was like, so what are you going to do with your life? Da, 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 da. And I'm like, I'm going to Cooper. And he's like, what? And I'm like, I'm, I'm leaving like in a couple weeks, dude. Like I, oh, wow. like I got into school and he was just like, what? <laughs> and as I, I teach there now, so it's like... I, Cooper did something for me that I, I definitely didn't even know I needed was that it gave me a, an experience in a space that um, I, I think I would have been a totally different guy if I hadn't gone there. Yeah, it was definitely like a I don't know what it was like when you were there, but I felt like they really pushed a very standard art school experience, but like to an extreme where you like learn how to draw really, really well in the first year. And then the second mm-hmm. year, they're like, never draw anything ever again. Yeah, break you. Yeah. Like a friend of mine said to me, Cooper is like, oh gosh, it's so funny. I'm, okay, I work there. But she said that her sister was in the military. And she's like, in the military, they break you and they rebuild you. Cooper, they just do the first step. And it's like, <laughs> I do feel that that's a part of the, the way it is there. It's like, they want you to become an individual. They want you to try to figure out how to become an individual. But you're 18, you know, you're like 19. For me, it was like my first time living away from my folks and first time living in a big city. Now I'm from like South Florida. <laughs> it is very different. Well, when you're from South Florida, you weren't from like Miami Beach. You're from like a no. rural area or like uh, no. suburbs was, or like. I was like from North Miami, like Carroll City, which no longer exists. What does that mean to the rest of us? <laughs> okay, Carroll City is like the ghetto. And okay. then like, and so Carroll City got incorporated into another. They had to make it its own city with its own cop force because basically there was no money coming from the rest of Miami to help fix it. And so after Hurricane Andrew, I moved down to Homestead, Florida, because my dad becomes the postmaster down there. And then I'm all of a sudden I'm in the sticks. So I'm like out in like cow country. So you had the full sucky South experience, like both sides of it. Oh, yeah. Like rednecks, like first time seeing rebel flags and all that stuff, you know, clan country kind of thing okay. i mean yeah coming back and then transporting from there then going to cooper union in new york city i was just like this is the best thing that possibly ever could happen to and me and in the east village in new york city 
Yeah. So the Miami, I even grew up as a kid. Like when we would go to South Beach, my friends were like, you know, from generally were like, what are you guys doing? Because nothing happened there. This is before like Will Smith and Miami and like the thong song, you know, that happened when we were like in actual college. So like any of that vibe was not there. It was like still retirement community. It was dry. We'd go out there because we could like, you know, do whatever we wanted. Your Cooper experience was like boot campy. Yeah. Like I'm kind of like like a shift a few years earlier in terms of like education. But like my experience at Cooper Mm. was like, in some ways, an intensification of the magnet school that I had gone through in high school. Mm-hmm. In high school, it was like, take a bunch of high school kids and then teach them to draw. And then the beginning of Cooper, it was like kind of more of that. Mm. I took to it kind of naturally because I was like, oh, this is like what I was doing, but they have a library. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then when I went to Yale, it was just like a lot of people had shell shock at Yale. And I was just like, oh, this is like even more. Like for me, totally. it was yeah. it was like one and then two and then three. It, like I, it was like natural for me. And a lot yeah. of people I met at Yale had just not. They were like, "Holy shit, I'm being judged," you know. Yeah, they've never been called out. They've never been like really someone say like, "Okay, you can draw. So what? Okay, you can paint. So what? Like, what are you really about?" I remember when I first went to the first crit there. It was everyone in my first year, and they were like, "We want a crit. We want a crit," and you know, and, and they were really excited about it. And then. Uh, when the professors just went around the room and just like nailed everyone, just nailed them to the wall. And as I'm sitting there, I'm like, I'm like the last guy going, but I'm like, I've been through this so much in my life that as soon as he started going at the first person and that person tried to defend themselves, I was like, oh, I know what this is. Mm. And I don't know if that makes it, if that's a realistic thing to take into the rest of your life or the way, you know, to deal with things. But I do think you do need a shell shock. And you do need a bit of a reality check. And those environments gave me that. That definitely was my experience. Is like the people who had been to like, who had come out of New York and LA, who got to Yale, they were mm-hmm. like, yeah, you know, this is school. And the people mm-hmm. who hadn't, they had been like the best student in their school their whole life. Yeah. And then they showed yeah. up and they were told like, you're not good at anything, especially the things you think you're good at. And then it was <laughs> yeah. like, First off, they yeah. were just like, shut up. You make like minimalist paintings with like a number two on it. Like, who are you? You're just some guy, you know? Yeah. When you went to Cooper Union, were you still doing comic book stuff? Did they no, try to man, knock that, that got, out of you? That got bat- beat out of me pretty oh, okay. early on. I <laughs> mean, because, because it was like, a, it was a constant struggle. It was just like, you know, I couldn't help myself because I was constantly surrounded by comics. All my friends were nerds, you know, and like, that's what we were about. So when I got to Cooper, it was definitely like, I actually stopped going to the comic store, you know, stopped going to like St. Mark's Comics, you know, I stopped going. It's half a block away. Yeah. I know. I know. Tell me about it. So, so, you know, I had to fight. It was just like, I would walk by it, but you know, the roaches down there kind of kept me out, but there was like, I, I just, I stopped doing it. So I'm like, I have to become serious. I have to become an adult. I hear this from so many people. Like, I'm a real artist now. Did you feel that way, Zach? Like, I'm a, did you ever have that moment? Like, I'm a real artist now. I can't do comics. I mean, I never had that, but I do think that it took me a surprisingly long time to look at comics as critically as I did mm. once I got re-got comfortable with them again. You know, like I never stopped buying them and I was always buying comics and I was always, and I was even like making comics in school, but I would also, I was just like, I was preposterously involuted and productive. Like I was like, I'd be like, oh, I got to mm. make three comic books panels today and I got to make three paintings and I got to make three like performance pieces, you know, like I was insane. 
So I never stopped buying or making comics, but I think it wasn't until my freshman year of grad school that I started looking at them with the the same like critical, mm-hmm. same like, oh, I got to take this seriously eye that I was looking at everything else before. Like up until then, it was like an intuitive part about what I was doing. So I don't know. And, and John, what about you? I mean, you like your stuff is super comic based. Like, how did you experience that? It, it was very similar. I, I, I made comics all through high school. I went to art school, and I thought I was so serious that I could not make comics. And then when I graduated from college, and I was like, let's do something fun. I'm not in school anymore. Let's make comics. That's the most fun thing. I just started making comics again after, mm. after I graduated. That's smart. I mean, that's, I mean that's, I'm happy to hear it. I mean, I wasn't that smart at all. I was like still bashing my head against like my own hand in a way. Like It took a real long time. I took grad school like second going into my second year um i'm driving in this car with like sam messer and he turns and he looks at me and he goes like why do you paint and i'm like i paint because i'm still pissed off at my high school art teacher for saying i can't paint <laughs> and, and he's like does that's like a good reason and i'm like <laughs> like no and he's like you're a good drawer man you're a great drawer you know like do your thing you know like do your thing and i mean i, I don't even tell people that story too often because it's you know it's my story and it's that moment that you could hear it any other day and it wouldn't click, but that day it clicked and it was like, oh yeah, my hand. That's the one thing I always can trust. That's the one thing that always makes it work. So from that point on, I've just been drawing or thinking of everything I paint or make as drawing. Uh, Jeff Lewis has this theory that, um, like, you know how like um, the CIA backed some of the early abstract expressionist shows. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, because they've Yale and, and, and CIA. Yeah, and it was like that actually is a real thing, not a conspiracy theory. Like they found out that like the CIA was trying to like back up abstract expressionism as a avant-garde art form and also kind of a way to push artists at the time away from social realism, which was like, you know, made really obvious political points. And so it kind of just to create some daylight between the Soviet Union and the U.S. and Make it seem like mm-hmm. the U.S. was a... And a lot of great art got made, so thanks, CIA. However, mm-hmm. Jeff's theory is that underground comics were the penumbra of abstract expressionism. Mm-hmm. They were sort of the underground art form that did everything that abstract expressionism couldn't, and also, mm-hmm. to some degree, couldn't do any of the things that abstract expressionism could. Ultra, it's ultra-narrative, super based mm-hmm. on identifiable ideas, small instead of big, Everything opposite. It was never in a museum. It was always in your hand. Mm-hmm. And that the current generation coming up is like the return of a of a repressed mm-hmm. thing. I could see that. I mean, I definitely think that there's something where when I was coming out of school, you know, we were still talking about all these weird isms and like postmodernism and everything else. And just like, how does that really apply to me? And then last like decade or so, I've seen people just kind of toss that out a bit and just kind of go like, what do I want to make? Like, what is it I'm about? What is it that I'm interested in? And I don't know, I have a feeling that the figuration and painting is coming back. Definitely the comic book stuff is, you know, swirling, not just because of like Marvel and DC's vast world. But what you're saying about like the CIA, it's, it's funny because I'm reading this book called Legacy of Ashes right now. That's Oh, big, yeah, that's yeah, a really good one. Yeah, and it's like just kind of talks about like some of the failed attempts at like at the CIA to control or do things in other countries. But when I, I remember that same point with the CIA that you were bringing up earlier, I, I brought that up in school uh, to Rob Store. 
And he like totally had a conversation about it, you know, in the conversation of like thinking about how art can be used and how it has been used to uh, push the agendas of, of those in power. But I do love the idea of thinking about comic books and the subverse and the outsider is working. It's just working just as hard, even if he, it's not so aware of itself, you know. Sartre had a thing about, it was like 1950 or something, and he was talking to his friend who was like an experimental composer. His friend was saying, this is the new music. We're doing new, brand new experimental music. And Sartre was like, shouldn't like a new experimental music be like something that is organically connected to like a Democrat, mm-hmm. like normal people experiencing their daily life? This is like 1950. Yeah. Right before that happened. Mm-hmm. It's like a fascinating moment where like, yeah, there was like about to be like an experimental music that everyone had access to, and that was going to be taking over the world for the next, you know, till the end of the century, not longer. And that was, like, an interesting moment where, like, he was, like, theorizing a thing that didn't yet exist. But he was like, yeah, but, I mean, there should be, like, yes, it's fascinating what you're doing with atonality, but shouldn't there be something that, like, anybody could just pick up an instrument and, like, make some kind of music? Yo, that's the greatest thing about a theory is, like, because there's enough information there that, you know, the person can see that they can connect the dots. And sometimes it takes forever for the theory to actually be proven, you know, like a Higgs boson, you know, like it takes like a while for that to actually come about. You know, people are sitting there scribbling things on walls and all of a sudden until you see it explode in front of you, can you actually prove it? But everyone could sit around and really have a great night or couple, you know, talking about it. I love that. How do you feel like when you go to make a painting... Mm-hmm. Uh, versus going to make like a comic page. How do you feel like your bigger pieces respond to that format? What do they take advantage of that you can't when you're making little stuff? Are they in what way are they different to you? One thing in particular, it's I think it would be color. I'm like I just don't really heavily think in color. I just I never did, and it was like. I did, you know, color theory and I look at stuff and I really have to sit there and program myself to think about it. It's something about the body. It's about the impact. When I was working in paper and large scale and I was using like glitter and mass, you know, I wanted something that felt like it could consume you, that it was taking over the wall, that it was like um, something to stand in. But with the, the page, there is like a bit of an intimacy. There's something I've really had to reconcile about the book lately because, um, had this debate with a lot of people about like why are you still buying paper comics you know like just go digital you know it's like it's so great i don't have all these books everywhere anymore now that i'm kind of like thinking about it more and i'm looking at books there's an intimacy there where the painting when it's up on the wall it kind of presents itself it has a different energy i'm still trying to unravel it because i'm as i started making paintings again and using color kind of moving out of the black and black stuff i was doing i started to realize that like it's easier for me to just access it as a drawing. It's more like a printmaking than than it is like even like a painting to me. Some like, of them look like prints to me. Yeah. They only look like silkscreen prints. You draw and then you slot in the color as a choice. Yeah, as a choice. It's like it's kind of like I if I want to make somebody make something that's like makes me a little nauseous, then I know what colors I need to do to do that. So I'm like, I'll use a pink and a really weird blue that kind of makes a vibration hit with a yellow and a white background. And then, so it's just like, none of it fits right, but it's all like interlocking because the drawing is doing the weaving. So then you have this kind of like push pull, like I want to look at it, but then my eyes like kicking me out. I think that kind of sensation that color can bring to something is what I try to use it for. And that's what I try to use painting for. I used to think about painting as something that had this triumphant edge to it. Now I I just look at it as like an interesting nuance to what I'm doing now, at least for right now. Some of your more recent paintings are kind of 
they're sad and they're funny. Mm-hmm. They're kind of wise ass mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the book that I'm working on right now, it kind of is dealing a little bit with my identity and this like werewolf character and this like dual identity of like being cursed. So the idea of the book is that like Manifest Destiny is like a curse that has infected all these people and it's the idea of America is infecting all these people and we've all been transformed. So everyone walks around looking like werewolves, that idea of the curse. But there is like a bit of violence and there's, and I think the violence in the work and how the violence is coming out more in my work and the, and the I guess the depression and the sorrow is just that I, I think about a year or two ago, I started having more of a, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter movement and um, Mike Brown and just kind of looking at my body and realizing that like how it's usually seen by the world. I mean, that's where the world kind of came about was that like I walk down the street and people don't smile at me. <laughs> I walk down the street and people will like cross the street. I walk down the street, you know, it's like, it's just like my life is just one where the condition of like how I, I finally live in a nice building in New York City. It is a nice building. There's like an internal you and an external you. Exactly. The internal me is always in check of its external self. And so as I'm walking into my building, if I see someone walking into my building, sometimes I actually hold back and let them just go in before I go in because I don't want to even have that moment of something weird happening of where they don't understand the situation. Have you... Always felt like this. It's just a recent thing. Oh, it's a. It's been that way for a long time. I mean, it's funny. It's like when you're like little and you're black. It's like you're kind of cute to people. <laughs> but when you're like six foot three and two hundred and fifty pounds, then you're no longer cute. Then people just don't. I mean, I have glasses. I know. I'm kind of a, like a. You're geek. a big guy. Yeah, I'm a, but it's and I'm not like massive, but. I definitely feel that. I feel that pressure. I get told about, like, myself or, like, you know, how I could be perceived in this world. I think we've all gotten horrible things said to us framed as advice. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, like, listen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you have to live your life. But when, you know, the last year or so, when it felt like every week someone was getting killed for just living their life, you start to think, like, It's still shit. going on. Yeah, it's yeah. a crazy thing. Yeah. There was the one-year anniversary of Ferguson, and no one noticed because it was, like, every fucking week another cop had shot somebody. Yeah, shot somebody, and even what was happening in Ferguson that night and those, like, those days around it, and, like, the promise keepers who, like, show up with their guns, and they're, like, supposed to be, like, oh, we're here to protect the people of Ferguson. But, like, you're just a bunch of, like, predominantly white guys walking around with shotguns and AKs, and, like, you're just showing a sign of force. Because it's all about fear. When you look at, I mean, there's a broad and is going to continue to be like a broad range of responses to that awareness right now among other like other people of the sort mm. of the violent situation going on for black Americans. And you look at all the other artists who are dealing with this in their own mediums and different ways. Yeah. How do you think about, well, like, how does my response or my way of dealing with it special? How is it different? How do you think about your place in that? Well, like choosing to not just directly talk about my body as like the black body as we all kind of read it and easily see it, but then trying to coding it and using the bit of like what comics can offer, the power of the page. I don't know too many people who are into it like that. You know, there's people, Trenton Doyle Hancock is like one guy who understands that who gets it you know we sit around and we've talked about like the power of like the comic book and to talk about the external self the internal and the external self and so when i think about what other people have to do or what they're how they're explaining themselves how they're like showing themselves how they're talking about their own experience as a human being as an artist 
I like the diversity that I, I can pick up on and what I see, but I always felt like something a little different. Like Trenton was probably the first person I met who actually got me in the way of like, you're a nerd, you're a big black dude, and you like comics. We talked about Zelda for like an hour and a half. Oh, yeah. Just like talking about that. <laughs> As well, you should. Yeah, I mean, just that gold <laughs> cartridge and then, like, what it was like to be the kid who could bring the map to school and, like, lay it on the table. And then you'd always <laughs> sit there. And, and the idea of, like, fantasy and how we all had these amazing, like, little personal fantasies around what Hyrule looked like, you know, and, and what it could be. And I, and I really enjoy that. And to have that kind of conversation. It's like the first time I've really felt I had that conversation with another artist who demographically was similar to me, you know, in a way. I remember the gold cartridge for the following reason. Mm-hmm. is I was with Danny Pintaro, who mm. played the little kid on Who's the Boss? Whoa. Like Dan- Danny, the 10-year-old. Yeah, yeah. My dad, uh, I worked on TV, and we were in the store, and he was trying to convince his dad to buy it for him because, like, Danny had everything ahead of time, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. He was, so he was like, it has a gold cartridge and blah, blah, blah. And I remember his dad just going, like, so what does that mean? Like a gold cartridge, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. And I, I remember thinking as a kid, like, yeah, what does that mean? Like, yeah. why is it gold? But yeah, I just I, it is interesting that probably not unlike the JFK assassination, mm. everyone our age knows how we reacted to that gold card. Exactly, totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were still in the sizzle on that yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's truly. It's- well, I mean, but it was it was actually turned out to be a. A great game. On top uh, of that, I mean, I actually never played Zelda, but I know it's a great game because every because <laughs> pe- people whose opinion I respect. It's the only know. video game I actually really got obsessed with. Yeah, was Zelda. It was a very accessible RPG. It had like enough stuff there where you weren't actually having to deal with like leveling up or like any of the other those like those aspects of the game. But really, it was about like um, search quests. You know, it's just questing. Like all that guy's games, they used the language that was available. Mm-hmm to give you the most information. People still play those old games that are really well designed because they take the limits of the form and they do as much as you could with them. So Zelda would take like a like eight pixels and be like, this is this monster that goes like that. And I think Mm -hmm. that the relevance to comics is the same thing as like in a really good comic, you feel an artist right on the edge of what just a black mm. line around a shape can do. Yeah, and th- yeah, they're surprising themselves all the time. I mean, doing the book, I I didn't make it paneled. You know, it's it's very just like one image per page because like I didn't know where to start. And um, at the time I was like working for Kara Walker and we were like just looking at drawings and she, I, I said to her, well, you know, I, I, I just can never make a comic. And she's like, I can never do it either. And I said to her like, well, all I can do is do like a page. And she's like, well, why don't you just do a page? And I was like, okay, crap. All right, so then I started doing it. And as I started doing it, I started wanting to become more sequential or I started to, like, think sequentially. or, And then I started thinking about, like, all the stuff that I'd been making for, like, I don't know, last seven or eight years, all the drawings that were kind of popping up in different places where one character would just pop up out of nowhere. It's like I could finally put it in a in a narrative i could put it in a line i could put it in a thread and it started to like make sense and i was like wow i'm I'm starting to understand a little bit about myself and like what some of these symbols mean and the hierarchies of this world that i've kind of created for myself and that i even had created a world to explain certain things for myself started to come to light so i don't know it's like when you were bringing up the comment earlier and thinking about my work different from other people's work it's like you know outside of trenton and that conversations that we've had i don't know many other people that are like making fine art 
at the same time while making their art in the comic world or like kind of have a love for that as well that are out there, you know, and especially in the, I think, and dealing with the issues of race. Oh, it's Carrie James Marshall. Did yeah. He's okay. He's one, the, but it, know. I felt like the art world did not receive that. Like they didn't get it at the time. I think oh, they weren't ready. His comics were very comic, you yeah. know, like they looked a lot like, like comic books, even painters who are not at all interested in comics these days. It seems like there's a lot of artists who have these ongoing narratives that are basically comic-like mm-hmm. that you need to access to understand their work, or at least that's like the wall text is all about like, mm. you know, this is about the Pilgrim's progress. Yeah, in a galaxy far, far away, yeah. Yeah, there's like <laughs> a very specific, it's like almost like comics are the subtext, or movies mm-hmm. are the subtext of all these people's like static artworks. Totally. And the people who are actually doing comics. Oh, um, Oliver Harrington, who was like an amazing like cartoonist, not cartoonist, but um, like comic strip, format or just a one-off political piece you know he was an amazing hand great talent and but he was also like a member of the NAACP and Chester Himes who wrote like great oh yeah yeah novels you know He's an amazing like pulp pulp detective novelist exactly and it was like so there was this beautiful cross but I started to think more about like what was the divide you know like really what created the divide between these guys who are making all this stuff and and putting things out in comic books and form or inside of magazines or in newspapers and then the people who then become like considered like fine artists i i just um, class I, class i mean yeah i mean i mean that's true even for like you know white artists is like true, yeah shedding comics is a way of shedding your class mm-hmm. you know like it i mean you face it even now like mm-hmm. right now people at dc would call me up and be like hey do you want to do something and i have to think like what will that what is that gonna look like <laughs> you know like if you're having shows and you're a successful artist mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, you're now you're doing a comic. It's like certain people like can just do it because of where they are. Yeah. And other people, if you do it, people go, oh, what's going on? Yes. Is Dumbo no longer an elephant? Yeah, like, yeah. like that's a scene I always think of. Like, oh, you're stepping back. Yeah. Are you like, yeah. or it's like, but I mean, you make a great Batman, dude. <laughs> like after this last run, I mean, it's, it's really good right now, but you could do a good Batman. Yeah, no, I totally hear it. And, and I think it had something to do with, like, the re- reproducible object. It gets right oh, back absolutely. to Benjamin and, like, the aura. 100%. Yes. Like, One off, you're great. Five of them, questionable. <laughs> you know, like... Because then it's like, if you're creating an object which there are 20,000 of them or 100,000 mm. of them and everybody can afford one, then why is somebody paying five figures for your painting? There has to be this assumption that there's a difference and it goes it's all Lichtenstein's fault basically (laughs) Um, you know but that goes back to like inter-Jew conflict which is a different podcast (laughs) Um, so far we've learned about comics Mm -hmm. the power of spite Legend of Zelda (laughs) what else is a big influence for you Mm. Or is that covering everything? God, the big three. I, the big three. Those are <laughs> there are the kind of. I was gonna say they look. They remind me kind of of show posters, but mm. for a show that doesn't exist or movie no. posters. Well, I was trying to go for more for like books, like our book covers, because I was thinking with well, a poster, you kind of have a sense of like a certain type of limited duration with like a film. Like you see like a poster, at least okay. That depends. A current poster, yeah, it's crap. But if a poster in the eighties, like that'd be amazing. But you have a sense of like, okay, that's about an hour and a half to two hours of my life, and I sit in a dark room and I get information thrown at me. 
but I wanted it to be feel a little bit more like a book cover in the sense that like there's a certain type of investment that I want people to have or like I try to come up with like weird painting tactics to kind of make people have to look at them or have a different sense of them when you actually see them in person. No, yeah, like I'm looking at George Washington Wolfhead riding a horse and the horse has a necklace of skulls. Yeah, yeah, that's war. Yeah, the four horsemen. Just as a graphic, it's like, oh, it's a graphic. But then the background stuff, like there's a sort of portal behind him. Yeah. These little, if you saw that on a book cover, you would instantly know it was one of those book covers, not where they had had someone draw an illustration. It was Mm. one where they had taken an existing work of art and used as a book cover because there's just too much work yeah involved there's just too much detail and complexity and in, in and color changes in that background for it to be just there to serve that one simple purpose yes it's not it's not economical for that purpose yeah yeah the full four horsemen thing that kind of came about where i was making the last show and i was dealing about the alamo and i was like really into this whole thing about the alamo and like whether or not uh, david crockett like surrendered or not and a lot of people don't say he didn't and it has a lot to do with the idea of american victimhood and, you know, gives us the legitimacy then to, like, take a crap load of land from a lot of people and then, like, later on consider them, like, foreigners. I was thinking about that and I was thinking, like, I want to end this story. Like, wherever the story ends, however it ends, like, how does America end? And it was like, okay, it ends with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You know, where this weird, crazy religious state, everyone's always looking for, like, oh, the end is coming, the end is coming. Like, uh, Jack Van Impey, you ever seen that guy? Jack Van Impey is this dude who used to come on television like early Sunday morning, probably like 4 a.m., him and his wife, Roxana. And like every week it was like the world's coming to an end. Like in they, and I remember like when uh, year 2000 came around, Y2K, they were like, it's finally here, the rapture. And then the next week they're like, we got a reprieve from God. I've always felt like in this country, there's a bit of this like built in knowing all the crap that we've pulled and all the bullshit that we've done to people that like the rooster's going to come home to roost someday and in the form of like you know god's judgment so i wanted to how i'm ending the book and how i'm gonna i don't know this whole aspect of this work it kind of ends with the four horsemen where george washington comes down as war a cowboy with like uh, smallpox blankets or pestilence andrew jackson is conquest and uh, death is just death, like a two-hit-faced Janus death, like the liar. Yeah. <laughs> oh. They kind of come about. I, I don't know. It's all the research and all the reading. I'm just, I don't fight it anymore, I guess, in a way. I'm just kind of like following it. Not it sounds hundred- like you've got a Sorry. ton of ideas. You're, you're <laughs> sort of like, you know, really yeah. struggling and doing the work to get it all you know, into your artwork. Where I probably was like two years ago, I was really just like, touching the surface of it and now i really feel like i'm in the thick of it and i'm in a place where it's like oh i don't even recognize the person who doubted this mm-hmm. i'm just like now i'm just the guy who's 100 percent into like stopping and having a conversation with someone or like i was saying to him john earlier that i went over a couple weeks ago to gary panner's place and i just decided like hey can i just access you to, to look at this thing to just give me an honest opinion about what the fuck i'm doing like i'm trying to understand how to make a comic he's like the king of advice too i I love all his advice yeah (laughs) and it was it was just such a an honest but like real not oh of course you're not doing this right you know like how could you do this he would just be like hmm you might want to consider some text in here you know 
or you might want to think about this or the pacing of this and you know kind of look at it and and I wanted to show it to him like by laying it all out across the table and he was just like no I want to like see it how I'm supposed to see it just like went through it and spent like four hours with me just like wow. that's so cool it's so rare to get that outside after school oh you yeah know, like you know people who are just patient and you know and, and who want it you know like they mm-hmm. want to hear and it wasn't industry talk it wasn't like oh what what are you doing with this space or when you're showing next or any of that stuff we talked about comics movies art influences you know good stuff people interpret guernica not because it is full of symbols mm-hmm. and meaning but because picasso is famous and interests people, and then they go into the narrative mm-hmm. because they're invested in finding out after that because they like the painting or they want to like it or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think that like a lot of work that you see has like symbols, it has narrative, it has these underlying things, but they're all coded because it's fine art and it's painting. Things mm-hmm. are left ambiguous. There's certain levels of like personalness to it. How do you feel about the viewer who doesn't interpret? Does the painting have something to offer them or do you feel like you have to pull them in, make them start interpreting and reading the codes and the signs in order for it to work at all. I always thought that I was going to try to have to beat people over the head and then drag them to what I wanted them to see. You know, after my, my first show, I remember just feeling like I want to have a conversation. You know, I want people to have a conversation with me about the, the thing I was researching. Just standing in the middle of the gallery, waving your arms. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or like I would sit back and I would like wait for someone to like draw like one and one together or one and two together, whatever, and then do the math. And then I'd see like this click in their eye and maybe a smile on their face. And I'm like, okay, they got it. You know, like, boom, they got it. I realize that you can't reach everyone. Not everyone's going to be able to access it through drawing and, and some of the stuff that I do visually. I think it is more accessible than other things that I've done in the past. Because, I mean, when I was making paintings around like Benjamin Franklin and just like a black on black, you know, add Reinhardt style I was taking the pigment, I was removing the binders and, you know, really doing his process to make these paintings. And I wanted it to be burnt into the eye. I did a giant uh, painting of uh, Washington crossing the Delaware, and it was like a similar thing. I want people to kind of like have to stop and think about that propaganda of that piece because it was made like, you know, 70 years after the crossing of Delaware. You know, the idea of Washington crossing the Delaware on the Christmas Eve is this epic thing that like, you know, God's hands involved in it. So I, I just like, and I make these giant black on black things. And then a lot of times people would just say to me, like, so is it about the black experience? And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, like, it's about like this information on the page and about me doing something like a, a minimalist gesture to try to get you to observe this and think about these people or think about this event or think about this. But like, no, it has nothing to do with It's like, you think that's where I'm at? Or I just go around painting things black and then and saying it, it relates to me, <laughs> you know, like. It's a car. It's a black car now. You know, like, what? <laughs> you know, like that's ridiculous. I know what my intentions are. I know what I'm trying to get done or do. And maybe then I have my my trusted advisors, you know, the, my friends. The, you know, I think the best thing about being in art school and what I always tell my students is that, like, be as vocal as you possibly can. So you'll actually will know who your community is and who are the people you can trust their opinions you know, like those people, like that's the whole point of going to school is like you, you meet people who you can most likely you can trust, hopefully, um, for their honest opinions for a very long time. I, I'm uh, glad I'm glad we're revisiting this because you mentioned you, you teach at Cooper Union. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you teach there? I'm teaching advanced painting as a visiting artist this semester. 
Ah, so and, are you tearing the kids apart yourself? Do you have your own approach? Um, I actually, you know, the funny thing, I I stopped making work, I think, for about seven years after Cooper because I was just kind of burnt. And I had been in that crit experience for so long okay. that, like, you know, I... You know, I was totally like, blood's in the water, let, let's get in it, you know, let's go at that person, you know, like, they're, they're crying, oh my god, they're crying, you know, you know and it's, it's fucked wow. up, it's fucked up, you know, it's twisted, and it's, it's not right, and it's not... Did you um, say seven years? Yeah. Seven years! So, did you, what did you do for those seven years? Did you go to grad school, like, seven years later, or what did you do? Nine years later, I went to grad school. Um, so, I, what'd you do in between? I lifted heavy things. I got triple hernia, like, had a back operation. <laughs> you so, know, like, you, that uh, you, like, had a lifting job for seven years? Yeah, basically just, I mean, I didn't know where I was at. I had a lifting job for a very short time, but it was literally almost a schematic of the most boring job in the world. Oh, yeah. Something would come on a truck, and I had to move it to a shelf, and that was the whole job. Yeah, and it's like, and the guys that are working there are like, Mark, like, what are you doing here? Like, what are you doing, man? Like, come on. And I'm like, it's like, you're obviously smart. And I'm like, no, it's it's like, I just want simple, man. I just want simple for right now. Should I don't be a want- ditch digger for a while? I would have done it. Totally. Are you literally yeah. saying that Cooper Union put you, that was like, you made like, I don't want to make art. And like, so you just deliberately sought out, or is that the circumstance you found yourself in? No, not Cooper. I think it was just like life. It was post 9-11, man. You know, like my senior year was 9-11. Kind of after that and seeing that, I was kind of like, what am I doing pushing paint? You know, what am I doing doing that? Like, I have no Were idea. Were you then, doing anything creative for the, during those seven years? It turns out I drew a lot. You know, like I'd go to friends' houses and their moms would be like, you left like 40 drawings in our house. Could you come and get them? And I'd be like, it's a gift. And like, we don't want a gift. <laughs> you know, like come and get your drawings. <laughs> but well, that could be like an anti-career. You pay people to take your drawings away. Yeah, I would love that. Um, (laughs) But I, you know, I know I just maybe had a little bit of trauma or something, but I just needed to like keep things real simple for a while because it just seemed like I've been in art school for so long. I mean, Cooper was not the thing. It wasn't the issue at all. I got a lot out of that place. I learned a lot from that experience. It really pushed me. It was like going in, I was, I don't know, I didn't like it. And then after like, going to see my friends at Micah and I'd go to the, one of their crits and I'd be like, they're not getting into anything here. They weren't going anywhere with anything. Not to diss on it, but they learned some really great skills though. I'll give them that. But, um, you know, it was just really personal. I was like, for me personally, I don't think I have lived enough or know enough about myself to really say I'm, I'm a painter, you know, like, or I'm a, an artist. I don't, I don't know what that even is. <laughs> so let me go work and bust my ass a bit and then maybe I'll come to it. So know. what made you ultimately come back cuz now you seem to be going with a lot of steam. Um it was like basically I was doing the economic downturn of 2008. <laughs> it was what did it. It was basically I got like, like brought you back I'll, to I'll art. I went to fine art. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I was like I was like I need some security. Yeah. You know. <laughs> So there, start painting. Yeah, there was a lot of things. It was just like my, well, one of my grandmothers passed and she was the, you know, really important person in my life. And I like lost my job. I then like broke up with my girlfriend and then I'm sleeping on a friend's couch, hanging out with his dog a lot and I'm drawing and I'm painting a bit and I get a studio and then my friend Kadar Brock, he's like, hey man, like let's do a show. 
So I started doing, I did a show. And it was like, it was like, a, I think for me, it was a lot of my friends who had been watching me kind of go in a circle over and over and over again and, and not wanting to engage. But like, they just kind of stepped back and let me kind of be out there. And then when it was kind of time for me to come back, they just kind of let me back in, you know, oh. and they just kind of like showed me what I'd been missing in a way. It's cool that you had a support network. No, you know, he's kind of saved my life there. Because otherwise, it was, I was circling, but I was kind of close to a drain. So, like, if I didn't, like, get some help, I was probably going to go down the drain. So then I did the show with this guy, Jeffrey Chido, who had this space in... Oh, I know him. Yeah, you know, I'm sure you do. Everyone knows Crazy Jeff. We were in the same year. <laughs> yeah, no, he's a year Jeff. Behind. <laughs> Jeff Chido is a year behind me. Yeah, so Crazy Jeff. The number one piece of trivia about Jeff is that he is the person... Who had who snagged the email address hotmail at hotmail.com. What? I'm I'm pretty sure when Hotmail came out, I'm pretty sure that <laughs> I think it was Jeff Cheeto. It might have been somebody else at Yale. It might have been one other guy, but I'm pretty sure it was Jeff Cheeto who was the one. Like, because you know, I'm sure everyone in the world is like wonders like who managed to get hotmail at hotmail.com. Yeah, yeah. Jeff. Yeah, that that's Jeff. <laughs> that, that does sound like him, 100. percent And so. He, as Jeff does, he asked me to Skype and he says to me, Mark, I need to speak to you. And I was like, I don't want to talk to you, man. He's like, you must go to school. You should go to grad school. You should go to Yale. And I was just like, I don't know, man. I'm School's out, man. You know, school's out for summer for a long time. I'm done. And, you know, and but then it kept happening where people kept coming up to me and speaking to me and kept saying to me, like, you should really think about going to grad school. You know, like, I really think it's would offer you something. And it just clicked. I don't know. It was like I started listening to like that. You know, I started I guess I think I was at a point in my life where I was willing to like take suggestions from other people and just right. like, OK, you know what? Obviously, you know, under my own thinking, I was working in a warehouse for seven years. <laughs> you know, like that's the best my brain is going to do if I don't ask for help. So if I ask for help and just see what comes along, I can kind of move forward, you know? That's a big part of the story, I think. It's rare for people to just completely stop and then start again. Mm-hmm. I know that Yale did that to people. There's a lot of people who just stopped because mm-hmm. they, it may not have been just the place and the criticism, but I think at a certain point, the idea that what you experienced was the limit of the experience. Like mm-hmm. that was the, that, this yeah. is what art is like. This is what the art world and is like. Was, and this is what it's always going to be like. There's always going to be something fun and there's always going to be people coming to talk to you and there's always going to be this access. And since I had been for seven years working in a warehouse, when I got there, I was working there every night 24-7. Like people would come into my studio and I'd be there at 4 a.m. and they're like, why are you still here? And I'm like, you don't understand. <laughs> you know, like I've literally slept on a couch, you know, like I had nowhere like, else to go. <laughs> I had nowhere else to go. You know, like this was awesome for me. This is heaven for me. Finally, you know, and then I'm also I'm taking advantage of an experience that I didn't maybe take advantage of when I was younger. I didn't have maybe the you know, I don't really believe that kids should go to art school right out of high school. I really don't. I just think it's like have a little life, you know, like, no, it's a it's an investment. It's a real choice. And and since Cooper isn't free anymore. You know, there's, yeah. you know, it's just like, it's a, it's an expense. It's, and it's yeah. not something you really want to do with yourself. But if you, you ask know? our dads, it's, yeah, I know. It's not, a, it's the worst investment. My dad was a, a, a police officer. Oh man. So for me to tell him I wanted to go to art school, he's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, what do you, he's like, no, I just crazy see. Crazy Was talk. he a cop here? 
He was a New York cop. Whoa, crap. In the 80s? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, his dad had that whole arc. You know, he was like a cop, and then he turned it. Now he just bakes bread and... It's true. He's retired and lives in Florida and bakes bread. Wow. But I could relate to what you were saying before about a dad just being like, what are you talking about? Artist. Yeah, it's my dad. He he went out for like the police exam, the fire exam, and then the post office, and the post office called first. And so he like took that, you know. My dad too. Yeah. Yeah. You did the fire apartment exam, didn't you, John? I did. In order for my father to pay for art school, I had to take all the exams so he could help me. So I took the firefighter exam and the garbage man exam and everything like that. I thought about taking the fireman exam. (laughs) It was fun. um, No, it was actually the summer right before uh, 9-11 happened. And I was like... Oh, really? So I was thinking about like maybe becoming a fireman after school. Like doing some good, you know? Uh Uh-huh. You know? Uh Uh-huh. It was around when you took it too, John, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was a few years before. It's true. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely this guy. And as I'm looking at him over here, I'm like, hey, he could be a fireman. <laughs> but then I discovered that I could be an art teacher, which is what I am yeah. for um, elementary school. And that made me mm-hmm. really excited. Yeah. And so, so we're, we're all finding our way here. What we're do you feel like the experience is like working with like young minds and teaching them art? Like, do you try to like let them just find their own way or, or you do you feel like you need to like give them a cannon? Right now I'm doing the little, little kids I'm doing kindergarten and first grade. It's a school mm-hmm. that's just starting. Mm-hmm. And I'm really letting them find their own way. And a lot of them, they never get to paint. Yeah. And for a little kid to take blue and yellow and make green, yeah. they are so excited. Like, they're the first people to ever discover this. And they sort of give that excitement to you. Like, you get to like witness it. Yeah, It's yeah. really fun. It's magic. I really like it. I love it. Yeah. I think that's the best thing with any student experience is that when you suggest something to them, really... That's all it really is. You suggest, like, take blue and take yellow, you know? Do you, yeah, exactly. And, and then you see them actually apply the suggestion, and then they actually come, and then they come back to you with that level of excitement. That's, that's the magic for me, definitely. Do you see your students like, oh, you're so good, you just need to do this, or, like, you're on the cusp, or... I mean, on the cusp of what? I mean, it's, like, really, like, I think <laughs> about... I try, to, I try to make sure that... So I took a semester off from teaching because... I had so much schooling, I don't want to just reinforce all the crap that I was taught and just say it without thinking. So That's I took what I was a, wondering. Yeah. yeah, so I took a semester off and then I'm like had a dream. I was like waiting for a dream and it actually happened. So I'm there and I'm like in my class and there's some students there and I start explaining to them like what my job is. And I and I said to them, I think what my job is is that I'm here to try to help you to figure out as much as I pop, as you can about yourselves. My job is to try to take your bit of coal and help you help you compress it into a diamond so that when you get into the real world or, you know, quote unquote, real world, that when it tries to hewn you, when it tries to reform you, when it tries to like change you, when it tries to make you homogenous to the, the grand scheme of shit, there's a bit of you that's enough of you to like navigate that. Rather than just totally selling out to like, hey, my friend's making this. He's selling stuff. I'll just make that now. You know, like, I'd rather you have some sense of like direction to navigate your own ship. And that's what I'm looking for. Because I can't, I can't tell you what is the, the, the right thing for a person to do or make, you know. Um, I'm not. That's insane. A lot of people try it. Try to do that to students. Yeah. Um, but I, I just think it's like only anything. My whole job is just to sit there and try to say like, tell me who you are. Tell me what your experience is. This is how you're expressing yourself. And this is what I know about that. And just try to give them fuel. 
mm-hmm. to like to like burn and just like go for it. That's it. At the same time, if a student's trying to draw some anatomy and their anatomy just isn't right, yeah, yeah, if they're trying, if they're, <laughs> if they're looking for like accuracy and precision, then I'll come in and I'll say like, okay, this is where you know this. I can show you this too, you know, and I can show you the steps to getting at that. Um, but I, I, I think that you know, Cooper for me, it was an experience where I already had all that, and then when I got there, I just didn't want to do it anymore. I don't want to draw a circle. I don't want to draw another naked person. That's where we part company. Yeah, exactly. You're like, more, more, more. <laughs> but so then I decided to, my, my second year, I, I went to one of the professors. I was like, I really want to learn how to glaze paint. And he was like, okay, get this book. And he just walked away. It was like the moment of like handholding and like showing you how to do something, you know, through a guided professor-student relationship uh-huh. was kind of over. Well, it's also like that's yeah. like that's art school is like they don't really teach technique. You know? Yeah, like, it dep- it dep- I laugh whenever yeah. a, a, an article makes an offhand reference to all the techniques that they teach you in art school. I'm like, yeah. they don't literally. They've never taught a technique since they're like, this is a pencil. Well, it's like I found it. You know, the thing was that I had to find those professors who, if asked. You know, just like anything in the art world, you have to find the person who has the information you need. There's someone out there who has it for you, just sitting there almost waiting to give it to you. And all you have to do is just ask the question. If I would have opened my mouth and asked for help or asked questions when I was younger, I would be so much further along in my life. But I was really like more of a hard-headed little asshole who would just sit there and go like, I'll figure it out. Oh, you know, like, you know, and just get crushing like like failing blue or something, you know, into like a, a white and like, oh, this is the bottom cut. Horrible. So yeah, no more oil for me. Yeah, oil paint, man. Ugh. Yeah. I don't know why they invented that stuff. <sighs> Flesh. <laughs> let's let's bring us back to, to the present and, yeah. and the future. So what do you have, what, what are you working on now with all this behind you? Well, I mean, it's, it go? it's then behind me. It's like this, some You're of this. Still dealing with it though. Oh, I guess so. I mean, I, I, right now, it's the book. It's the making of the new paintings. It's like the idea of designing this book the way I did was that it would be kind of like a legend or a grimoire or it'd be like this place of casting or conjuring all, all the other ideas that I wanted to make, like paintings, um, imagery, characters. So I don't know if the book ever really ever ends. Does it have text? So there's like the main character's narrative. And then I decided to have a narrative of, a, of like an earworm that's traveling through his body that he's going on an epic journey of his own, and those parts have a narrator. But really, for him in particular, there isn't no text. There's made pictographs for some of his conversations with, with certain characters, but I'm really trying to lay it on the page and trying to see what drawing can do for me. And it's kind of like, I thought it was an awesome drawer, and I've learned how bad of a drawer I actually am. Especially when you put yourself up to, against like comic book drawers, you know, like that, that, bil- that ability to tell a narrative, you know, like in, from page to page. Have you ever seen the movie Fresh? Yeah, of course, man. The movies. Okay, so like Samuel Jackson's yeah. talking about like people are chess masters, but mm. then when you try to do the speed chess yeah, speed, like he does yeah. in the park, that he'd beat them all if you put them on the clock. And yeah. I feel like that, like comic book guys <clears throat> are guys who are on the clock. Totally. Like those guys, John Byrne can only draw one face, <laughs> but he can draw he could draw 100 of those faces yeah, in yeah. like five minutes and yeah. they all look like human faces and they all have believable expressions exactly. and they're like, so it's like a, a different totally. requirement. It takes me 
just to get across the action of a fairly typical page, like I'd have to spend almost as much time as to make a whole painting because mm-hmm. I just, I don't think about it that way. Yeah, it's like I'm learning it. And as I'm doing it, it's like I'm, I'm learning how to even think like that. And, I'm, and I always thought, like I took it for granted that like I knew it because I read the books. I had so many great books and I had so many great layouts in front of me that I felt through osmosis. I had absorbed all the knowledge of doing it. And now I'm like going back and I'm like looking at, uh, gosh, what's his name? Oh my gosh. I can't believe it. Oh, you know, little Nemo. Winsor McKay. Yeah. Winsor McKay. And Winsor McKay as a kid for me was like, God, you know, it was just like, how is he doing this page to page? It's like, it's like, what the fuck? You know? And still, if you look, go back and you look at his stuff, it's just like, no one really plays around with like layouts that way, you know. Or no, plays- when I look at Lewinsor McKay and I look at Picasso, I'm just amazed that anyone was impressed with Picasso at all. Like I'm like, <laughs> Lewinsor McKay will just it's take a the picture plane yeah. apart. It yeah. is a contest. It is. It's a contest. I'll tell you exactly it's why it's a contest. contest. Mm. Because you look at how much. Picasso got paid per picture. You look how much Windsor McKay got paid per picture. It's a fucking contest. Yeah, and Windsor McKay could pump them out, man. I mean, he was doing animation, doing like 4,000 drawings in like a month I, while doing all of his books. I, I like Windsor McKay much more than Picasso, but it's they can coexist and it's okay. Yeah. Like if you never looked at a Picasso picture mm-hmm. and you just look at descriptions by critics and you know, by our history mm-hmm. about what Picasso was doing to the page and to the image. Mm-hmm. If you read that text and you looked at, for example, the one where the Windsor McKay comic where like Lil Nemo is, there's all these monkeys climbing on cards, like giant cards, mm-hmm. and then the cards turn. Mm-hmm. Like that description could be, with you took out the word Picasso, it could completely mm-hmm. fit those pages. Mm-hmm. Or like he's in that mushroom forest and the whole pay, panel just turns into these discs of like mushroom shapes. It's like, they could be describing the exact picture. And it's like, but because of the class difference, like, mm-hmm. this is art for everybody. Well, and this is art for rich people. It's like, it's not recognized and, as a, as what it's doing. And you, when you think of, like, Windsor McKay being art for everybody, it's some beautiful art for everybody. You know, it's some incredible art that was being given to everybody to share. Other than the... Like everybody who's like a racial caricature. Okay, yes. that, okay. I was, I was, that was a mad. <laughs> oh, trust me, man. You know, this, see, that's the and that's the thing. It's like for me when I look at art history, it's always this like little moment of like, oh man, you really had to do that. You know, you just had to have a little Bushman in there, didn't you? You know, like you just. But Winsor McKay, definitely someone that I, I think about is, is just or like a, a Jim Steranko, or like right. you know, just yeah, like people, Starenko. yeah, people who just could make things happen in a book and just like use image to do it. Like that whole thing with like the Nick Fury where like you, he's in a maze and like you, and it's like basically like you, you end up turning the pages of the book, but you oh, don't realize yeah. it. Yeah. And so recently, um, Capula who's working on, um, Court of the Owls for Batman, he did like a similar yeah. thing where like Batman's been like stuck in this maze and he's like t- all poisoned and he's like tired and then eventually like he gets stabbed in the back but that's like this, the point when he gets stabbed in the back is when the page goes back into um, proper orientation. So right. like you don't even realize it as you're flipping through it. So I'm like in the comic book store and I'm like flipping through this and this just happens to me and I'm like oh shit, oh shit and I call my friend Tommy <laughs> and I'm like Tommy get your ass to the comic book store right now you know like you have to pick up this book. And I mean, that type of like beautiful experience that I think a comic can actually offer someone because it's that left to right read, the flipping of the page and the imagery all were in harmony to make that happen. 
And I just think that you can really just take it with a grain of if you take it with a grain of salt, you're really missing it. You know, you're missing like something really incredible that someone had to think through and give you to ha- have that little moment. No. Yeah, I think there's something about like a the kinds of spaces that a work of art responds to. Like when you watch a TV show, mm-hmm. you're super comfortable. Yeah. You're on your couch, and you are probably physically and mentally exhausted. Like you're like, that's why I'm watching TV. Like it's mm-hmm. that time of day when you'd be exhausted. For like you know, your average like primetime stuff, yeah. not daytime TV. Mm-hmm. And so what they show you and how that medium works responds to that person. Mm-hmm. You know, like the person who's on the couch, like they want to watch Cheers. Like they want to go to the mm-hmm. bar where everybody knows your name. Yeah. Or they want to, you know, like the kinds of imagery and the way it works. And then like in a gallery, you're like, you're feeling energetic. Mm-hmm. Like you got up. You got up before 5 p.m. Uh-huh. Yeah. You went all the way across town. You know, you went to like a certain neighborhood. You're standing up. You might even be with a friend. You're looking at the art. And yet at the same time, you have that whole anxiety of like, ah, but then next gallery, how many other galleries are going to hit before they all close? Mm -hmm. Then dinner, parking, all that. Mm -hmm. And so art like in the galleries responds to, I got to get your fucking attention. I got to be big and I got to be loud and I've got to be, I've got to take advantage of my limited window with you. Mm. And then the comics are like, again, you're at repose. You know, you're on the train or you're at home and you've like decided a lot of shit is not important right now. Yeah. Like you, you're at rest. I love that. And I think that <laughs> fundamentally like the space in your brain that can be taken up when you're at rest and the space that you take up when you've decided to go to a gallery or a museum, they're a little bit of different mental headspace. And I think- the best books, a lot of books, like, they start in this quiet, like, novels, you know, mm. or comics. They start in this quiet space where they're talking to you mm. because, in a sense, the, the best writers know that you're alone mm. when you're talking to them in, as, a, as, a, as a writer. Mm. And I think that that space has its own magic. And I think that's the kind of space that I'm looking for when I was doing the black-on-black work or when I do do something where – or, like, with the text and – like kind of like odd, ambiguous background where you can't really read something directly. So you have to kind of be there in front of it to see it and make it out. It's like, I, I do, I'm very aware of that. There's a person looking at this and their eyes are rolling over the surface of this thing. And that I want it to have a certain amount of time with them because someone said to me one time, like when you get any bit of money, like buy a painting and watch it die on your wall. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, like go out and get something you really like put it on your wall and watch it die because most often when you get a piece of art it just seems i don't know if it's because of the intention of the artist or the lack of attention on the on the part of the artist but they maybe aren't thinking about once it's out of their their line of sight it still exists i think a lot about like what one of my pieces look like outside of my line of sight if i have it in my wall in my studio and i can keep looking at it for like three months and i'm still interested in it you know, it still has a trick for me or two. It's like all the tricks I put in them aren't everything that I set up. You know, it's sometimes it teaches me something else and I can still like access it and get more out of it. But um, I wanted to have that similar response that a book has. I want that type of like intimacy of the viewer in their head looking at it and kind of everything else around them goes away a bit. It doesn't 
have to die. It can be like a child that you slid out of the nest. Yeah, yeah you know? exactly. <laughs> well, well, I mean, the thing on the wall, that's, that's the thing. It's like when he said that to me, I did get like paintings from people, you know, in art school when you do the whole trade. Yeah, a trade, yeah. And I have like some really old stuff from like back when I was like, you know, an undergrad. And I like maybe really like that person or I really like, you know, that painting and that's why I chose it. But then as time's gone on, I've just like been like, man, that just wasn't really that smart. That was like a really offhand gesture. And I just like learned to read the intentionality of a painting. And maybe sometimes there's some paintings that really come together. It's kind of like what you're saying about Picasso. Some of the best Picassos come back together and snap together for me because of drawing, not because of like painting so much. And I think for him, a lot of the time with his paintings, it was how he could kind of realize when his drawing ability wasn't quite up to his or his painting ability wasn't quite up to his drawing ability and that's in that i could access by looking at his paintings that i can understand by like looking at his work yeah i'm trying to think of like what do i have on my walls that are like completely realized artwork they're like mm. i have a print of a pollock that i have on the wall that i've been able to keep there without getting sick of it mm. and i've got an actual drawing that someone gave me and it's just high enough on the wall that I only have to look at it when I want to. And it's just small. And like, it doesn't like every day, but there's definitely like works that when you first see them, you're amazed by them, but they're close enough to what you do or what you want to do that after a couple of years, you're like, I could do that. Oh yeah. yeah. I know how that works. It, I mean, maybe you're wrong, mm -hmm. but your, your emotional response to it is like, oh yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's weird. I don't know what, what kind of works that you've got in your house, like are things that are still working for you? Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that I always try to think about for myself is that even though if, I, if when I'm doing something that's kind of graphic and it feels like it kind of hits, I still want there to be an element of it that makes it a bit of a slow burner. Right. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, why make it a painting? Yeah. You know, like it should just be a narrative moment. Otherwise. Yeah. yeah. To kind of get into, I guess, what you're talking about, like, why is it a painting or why have I'm like, you know, what what is it for me? You know, I kind of went on to something about color. It's really it is like, how do I then take what I did that really hit as a drawing and then figure out its speed? Like, how do I get an eye to run through this thing? And I can kind of track its speed, its course of its like read. Is that weird? Yeah. No, I mean, no, that's absolutely, I like, and that's what it looks like in your paintings. It's like, there's a graphic quality, like, that is recognizable as, like, the kind of language you, this is what this is, mm -hmm. like the little eyes in a cave in the yeah. dark. But then there's these background elements that are super involved. If you really wanted to look at all of those things, you'd have to be with it a long time. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so that makes sense to me. I think it's also kind of a bit of Ken Price, too. I think about him. At least in his drawings or his print work. That juxtaposition between yeah. those two things, but something that's very graphic, but then you'd also have like these blurs or these watermarks or these kind of things that would, could be a whole sky at night in that weird organic versus graphic nature. But what could seem accidental is like mastery plays it through and then you get like a, an environment. I think a lot about that. Play, you know? I always think of art as terms of like, get your attention, hold your attention. Mm -hmm. There are some artists that don't get your attention, but then they hold your attention. Yeah. Like once you, like if you're like told, mm -hmm. oh, this is important, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I tend to think of them as kind of crappy, but there are also a lot of artists that like we're taught are full of meaning and are important, but they don't get your attention. But there is a lot there. It's mm -hmm. just 
they don't read that way, at least to me, or to modernize or something. Mm-hmm. Then there's get your attention but not hold it. And I always think of that as like, there's like a slick magazine with great graphic design. And you're like, pick it up and you're like, oh, wow, what's in here? And you're like, ooh, and you, wow. Yeah. And then after a couple minutes, you're like, oh, this is just graphic design. Yeah. Like there's like <laughs> totally. none of the article, the articles aren't good. The thing in this ad that's being advertised is just jeans and I don't care. It's candy, yeah. It's not even candy because I love candy. candy. It's like <laughs> it's like a candy wrapper, you know? It's like, okay, perfect. Yeah, that's better. Yeah. yeah. You get super excited about it. It's like when you realize the first time you realize that you just got excited about a Japanese magazine because it was in Japanese. Mm, you know, like you're mm-hmm. like, oh. Oh, yeah. The only, the only exciting thing about this box or this thing. Oh, was, yeah. No, it's like anime like when I was a kid, like anything. It was like I, my first anime was like Fist of the North Star, then like Akira. So you start <laughs> off with this really kind of these high points, you know. So then you're really taking anything, you know, like any kind of weird like bubbled-eyed thing. And um, But I, to your point, what you are saying earlier, God, what was I thinking? I was thinking about um, I'm usually the wet blanket at that party when everyone's like really into something new. Like when everyone's usually like going like that person's incredible or this thing is the best thing ever. I'm usually the one to go like, yeah, but do you have you really thought about that though? Like do you, like do do you really think that person's really into that? You are spiteful. I, we, we found out earlier. Spiteful. I would think like cold hearted and vengeful. So who's the the your most recent victim? I don't have one. Yeah, right your most recent. Just. Just like an example. I mean, it's like one of those things where if you're walking through a museum with a group of friends and, you know, you just happen to see, you know, I can, God, I can't even. Give us, a, it could be something from like somebody who's dead. Trust me, Zach, I'm trying to think of someone who's dead. <laughs> like I really am. <laughs> I find that more living people I'm having issues with than I am with dead people. I think it's, hmm. I, I think it's like when you're in New York City that, you you do kind of get a malaise of like you know culture here where like sometimes something new will happen and then everyone will kind of catch up to that new thing and then there'll just be a lot of visual dialogue with that new thing and so then people are just kind of into that thing and they'll sit around and they'll just say it's okay because it's the thing and I'm usually the guy to you think of a thing like you don't have to name an artist but you think of a thing right now you're like man that thing is just a thing no I think it's like I think it's a way that we've kind of taken on abstraction Okay. Recently, I think we've kind of taken on an abstraction in a way that where we weren't critical at all. And I like the idea that we were going into it without having a lot of criticality, but everyone working really hard to not allow for any criticality to come from it. The thing about abstraction is as soon as like pure abstraction got invented, it had a critical moment because it was new. And then that critical moment was relatively short because it's hard for art writers to write about abstraction. Like, they mm. can't, they literally can't talk about a lot of things that figuration makes it easy to talk about. But also the artist had a different hand in it, though. Because, I mean, at the time when abstraction comes into play, you also have a lot of artists that actually know how to write for themselves and how to position themselves and talk about their work. So the critic and the space for the critic starts to narrow a little bit. Because they're not there to say, like, this is what I think. Now the artist is responding and saying, well, actually, this is what I think. This is my position. Like, with a Judd, you know, like, he has a position. He has a way of thinking about his work. He's not just putting something on a wall and saying, give me, give me what you think. You know, tell me what you think. I think right now we're in a critical crisis, mm-hmm. and that's great. 
because what we were getting when we didn't have a critical crisis wasn't that good. Yeah, like, of course, no. Like I, the no, critics were writing and they were powerful and people True. listened to them. Yeah. That's, that was not a good situation either. So it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. Mad Max, Fury Road, we'll oh, yeah. see who wins. Yeah, you know, of course. No, <laughs> trust me, I love the chaos. I love chaos, but I don't like things that masquerade as chaos. And it's just okay. and it's just a machine. And it's just pumping out the same old fucking forms of like overall abstraction and just saying that it's something that's about the sublime. But they're not even talking about the sublime because then they have to start talking about romanticism, but they don't want to talk have that conversation. They want to try to make it more modern. So they'll say it's about the internet and they'll say it's about like confusion and they'll say it's about yeah. information. And it's like Come on, man. You know, it's, it's an like, abstract painting and you, yeah. Yeah, and you're dressing it up with a bunch of other fucking pretty terms. And it's like, I, I'm willing to have a conversation around those terms and I'm interested in those subject matters. You just don't want to deal with the rhetoric. Yeah, the rhetoric. The rhetoric that, that is usually there yeah. to kind of, that is that candy wrapper. Part of it is that everybody has to have a press release and everybody mm-hmm. has to have a blurb. Yeah. And for most artists, really, really those things are extraneous and what they meant to say is the mm-hmm. art but that so mm-hmm. much of the art public is actually people who aren't actually art fans mm-hmm. you know they they're yeah. there because of a class expectation or yeah. because of a like, I hear you. and so they need it to be brought to them in some other way and so in trying to fit into that box of explaining it in some other way the artist accidentally or the gallery accidentally frames it in a way that isn't believable or plausible or meaningful. Mm-hmm. And so they have to live with that, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that that's a drag. Yeah, I mean, because that's the way it was kind of hard to say. Like, it's like I almost have to talk about, like, the paintings and the words used to describe the paintings more than I have to talk about the artists. Because, like, a lot of the artists that I met, have met that maybe fall into those categories are, like, brilliant people who are interested in making and they're here for the right things. It's just that you kind of get caught up. You know, and it's similar to what I was saying about my students earlier. It's like, I don't want them to get caught up. I don't want them to kind of like sell themselves into something that is a fad versus like them actually having an interest in something. So even when that fad isn't happening anymore, that they're still working, that they'll still be making, that they'll still be working on their own shit. But now you might be cutting them down when you're warning them. Yeah. I was cutting me down. No, no, no. I try not to. It's impossible for a single teacher to always be the teacher a person needs. Oh, you fuck know? yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Trust some yeah. people are going to respond very poorly to other people's personalities because it's just like they're too insecure or they're too confident for what you're telling them or they're in a different place. And I could just be plain old wrong, you know? Like I could just not have <laughs> what the person needs. You should you know? tell them that the last day of class. Oh, no. I told them that like the first day of class, <laughs> okay, you know? Good. Like I told them that like, you know, I'm not 100% on anything. I can just give you what I, what I kind of know. And then hopefully if I know more people who know more than me, I'll bring them in to talk to you because... Right. You but know, it's but, not math, you know? It's you know, yeah. thoughts and feelings. Exactly. And opinions. Yeah, man. I wanted to give you a chance to, to sort of like plug what you've been doing. Do you have a working title for this book you've been working um, on? So the title of the book is called Early Retirement. It's kind of like that the idea of like as an artist, like this idea of like either I'm going to like totally be out of the game tomorrow because I've just failed so hard or I like totally make a billion dollars and then I never have to work again. Either way, <laughs> I'm still here. Thank you. This has been really awesome, man. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Yeah. I know. Thank you for being such a good guest. I mean, we didn't get a chance to talk about D&D. I don't know. You got to come back again. Yeah, I know. In the future, I don't even know you were down with D and D. Oh, my name is Varen Gaylith. I'm a <laughs> level six wizard, conjuring. 
We'll play D&D one day. Yeah, man. Draw some wolves. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art. Check out Mark Thomas Gibson. is now teaching at Yale University. I'm a full-time lecturer. Also, on October 6th, Black Pulp opens up in New York City. The book that I talked about earlier, Retirement, is now called Some Monsters Room Large. It's in its second edition print. First edition sold out. Limited edition on sale starting October 6th in New York. You can contact IPCNY in New York City to get it. Oh, yeah. I'm starting not to curse so much. I'm working on that. Also, I have more of my artwork than my Tumblr at the pen, or just Google John Mingus. And Zach has a new book with Chana Maivo, October 4th. Next podcast, we'll be talking to Ted Minio. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at Weed Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We Eat Art is sponsored by No One Yet and is produced by Papin and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. And we hope to see you next time. Whoa, we won't see you. We'll just hear you. Well, actually, you'll hear us. So unless you tweeted us, we will have no idea you're even alive. So do that. Get on Twitter. All right, bye.